I'd like to have you turn to the sixth chapter of 1 Corinthians. And we want to talk this morning about what the Bible has to say about sex. I uh, can think back to my years on uh, the university campus, and this was always a topic that elicited a lot of response, and and, uh, people seem to be quite interested in this subject, and quite surprised that the Bible has a great deal to say about sex. But uh, I think we should expect that. God is the author of sexual matters, not Hugh Hefner or... uh, any of our modern-day purveyors of of sexual things. He's the one who thought up the entire process, gave us the bodies that we have, gave them the functions, the various members of them, and therefore it seems reasonable that he should instruct us about uh, the purpose uh, for which they were intended. The Bible really is very candid about sexual things. I hope you've discovered that. Our translations tend to uh, obscure that fact, but the Bible approaches these matters in a very frontal, straightforward, candid way. And I'm very appreciative of uh, that approach because I think we need it. And we need clear instruction from the Word on the nature of our sexuality. Uh, There's a great deal of nonsense being taught by the world because the world simply does not understand male and female sexuality. Uh, The scriptures describe sex as a mystery, a great mystery. That is, it's something that can only be understood by revelation. And I'm grateful that God has revealed for us the purpose for our bodies and their sexual functions. Uh, Let's begin by reading verse uh, 12. And as we read, keep in, in your mind the background of these studies In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing to a church uh, in Corinth that had been founded by the apostle. And we know that the city of Corinth was absorbed, completely absorbed, preoccupied with the subject of sex. As I've mentioned before, there was a large temple there in the city dedicated to the goddess uh, Aphrodite. She was the patroness of the city. And their social life and their religious life, everything centered around the worship of sex and related issues. And it's into this sort of situation that Paul is writing, explaining to the people in Corinth how God intends us to live. I'm always struck by the the uh, contemporaneous uh, nature of Scripture. It always speaks to issues that are just as problematic now as they were back in Paul's day. Because uh, life is life. People are people, wherever you find them. Uh, sin continues to be sin. Uh, commented before that the concept of original sin doesn't mean that people sin in very original or innovative ways. Uh, it just simply means that we're sinful in our origins and we come into the world that way and, and the world has always been uh, this way. Nothing changes very much. And so what Paul has to say to the city in Corinth is just as relevant for us today. Well, let's begin reading with verse 12. All things are lawful for me, But not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. 
Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a harlot is one body with her? For he says the two will become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Now, Paul begins this discussion in a very interesting way. He actually quotes what amounts to a contemporary philosophy in Corinth. All things are lawful. If you have a New International Version, you'll notice that the translators have placed that expression in quotation marks because they recognize that Paul is stating an axiom that was being circulated in the city of of Corinth. This was a saying, all things are lawful for me. Now let me try to explain as best I can uh, the thinking behind that uh, statement because it's important to understand something of the, of the philosophy of that, of that time. In Greek thought, the only thing that mattered was the soul or the personality. The body simply didn't matter. In fact, uh, the philosophers of that period characterized the body in various ways as a prison house of the soul or a carcass to which the soul was chained, and uh, the body just uh, didn't matter to them. The soul, they felt, was immortal and eternal, and it would live forever, but the body was a sort of husk to be discarded at death. My father told me once of an epitaph that he saw on a tombstone, uh, apparently a man by the name of P, Oliver P, P-E-A, was buried there, and the epitaph read, uh, Here lie the remains of Oliver P., well, let's see, wait a minute, I forgot how it goes. I've forgotten the first line, but the second line goes, P's not here, only the pod. P's shelled out, gone home to God. Now, that's, uh, that, essentially, that's Greek philosophy. P's not here, only the pod. That's the way they looked at the body. It was just a, a shell, a pod, a husk to be discarded. Now, from that point, philosophy went in two directions. They either believed that the body had to be severely chastened and disciplined, and that led into a kind of asceticism, the sort of thing that you find in the Middle Ages when people became uh, monks and they chastened their bodies and, and disciplined their bodies in various ways, or it led to the conclusion that you could do anything with your body. It didn't matter, because the only thing that really mattered was man's personality or soul. And apparently this is the direction the people at Corinth had gone. Any sort of illicit sexual activity is, is proper because what you do with your body doesn't matter. And coupled with this was Paul's teaching about Christian freedom. He had taught them that Christians are free from the law. They were not bound by the Old Testament laws, and therefore they were free. They had a, a liberty in Christ. And the Greeks had put together uh, the the Romans in Corinth, influenced by Greek thinking, had put together these two ideas and had come to the conclusion that they as Christians were permitted to do anything. Everything was lawful. And this became their saying, all things are lawful. Now the interesting thing is that Paul does not correct them because there's an element of truth in what they're saying. It is true, all things are lawful. 
I have occasionally sat down, tried to think through this issue and and fix upon something that in itself is evil. And I have never been able to think of anything that's evil. Everything is good. It's simply what, what has happened is that Satan takes the good things that God gives and he distorts them in some way. You know, Satan is not at all creative or innovative. He's really a very dull, unimaginative sort of person. All he can do is take the creative, innovative things that God does and twist them and distort them and ruin them in some way. But it's very difficult to think of anything in itself which doesn't have a proper use or a proper place. The problem is that just Satan twists things. For instance, even certain things that we usually describe as vices, like jealousy, have a proper place. God gets jealous. If uh, our mate is unfaithful, we ought to be jealous. God gets angry. Now, there is a wrongful anger, but, but anger in itself is not wrong. It's just that anger can be used in the wrong way. Can, we can get angry because we're personally affronted and not because someone else is affronted. Now, for instance, let me show you two passages of Scripture. Turn to Titus, the first chapter of Titus, verse 15. Titus 1.15. Paul says, To the pure, all things are pure. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience uh, are defiled. And then if you turn, to, turn a few pages back to 1 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 4. 1 Timothy 4, 4, Paul writes, For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God in prayer. Now, the context here is um, that of false teaching in the church. Teachers had come into their assembly and had begun to teach them it was wrong to get married and imposing certain dietary laws on them that were extra-biblical. And Paul says, no, those are things that God gave to us. He gave us food. He gave us marriage. And as a matter of fact, everything that God has created is good. The whole world is out there to enjoy. Now, certain things are prohibited. Certain uses of things are prohibited because they're destructive. But the things themselves are good and are to be used, you see. Now, therein lies the difference between legalism and Christian morality. Because the legalist says, everything is wrong unless I know it's right. Whereas the Bible says, everything is right unless I know it's wrong. And there's an important uh, difference to be made. If I say everything is wrong unless I know it's right, then I'm afraid of everything. Everything becomes suspect, and I'm uneasy and suspicious. Maybe I'm going to do something wrong, and, and I won't even know it. And God's angry at me, but I'm not aware of it. But if we understand that God has told us the wrongful uses of things, and we can trust him. Everything else, the world is ours, and the world is ours to enjoy. Only those things that God has prohibited are to be rejected. Now, going back to our 1 Corinthians 6 passage, you can understand then what Paul is saying. Sex is lawful. Sex is good. It's right. It's proper. But he conditions that statement 
in two ways. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. That is, some things don't profit me. Some, the, the way I use certain things may be destructive to me as a person. It may hurt my body. It may hurt my personality. It has some ruinous effect on me. It's not profitable, and therefore I can't use the thing in this way. And secondly, he says, I will not be mastered by anything. I won't be controlled by anything. I'll put everything to its intended use. The thing itself is right if it's controlled by the word of God in prayer. Paul tells us from the first Timothy 4 passage we just read. And so I need to know how to use everything in its rightful and proper way. Now, what Paul is saying is that sex is a good and proper thing. There's nothing dirty about it. It's not unclean. It's something that God created to be enjoyed, but its proper place is in marriage. We uh, get that information from Genesis 2, where the author of Genesis, Moses, in commenting on the creation story, the story of the creation of man and woman, says, For this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father. That is, he leaves one primary relationship where he's subject to his parents, and he cleaves to his wife. That's a Hebrew idiom for marriage. The word means to stick to or to be glued to, to adhere to his wife. And they become one flesh. And that's an idiom for sexual intercourse. So, sex is proper within the confines of marriage, where there is the full commitment, where a man and woman determined before God that they will stick together, they'll adhere to one another for life. And Paul says that's where sex finds its proper place. Outside of that, it's harmful, it's ruinous, it's destructive, it erodes the quality of life, it just destroys things. And that's why God is against sin, because it destroys people. You know, God didn't make up a list of ten things that are immoral, illegal, and fattening, and uh, then just impose them on us. The reason certain things are prohibited are because they ruin life. You see, that, that ought to be our attitude toward, toward people who are caught out in the world in immorality. See, we shouldn't be self-righteous and condemning. The Lord never was. Our attitude ought to be sorrow, concern for them, because what they're doing is going to ruin life. It will lead to to a destruction of personality and body. And we ought to be concerned, as God is, when people are being harmed. And, uh, and put, put sex in its proper place. Uh, my wife and I love uh, fires in a fireplace. And uh, <laughs> we're about to... I'm not a pyromaniac, no. Uh, <laughs> Uh, we just love to build fires. So we, I, we sort of have a custom in our house. As soon as it, there's the least bit of chill in the air in the morning, I get up in the morning and I build a fire in the fireplace. And uh, we get up and we drink our coffee in front of the fire and just kind of relax before I go off to work, spend some time together. And that's, we've done that for years. But, you know, it would not be at all proper for me to build a fire in the middle of my living room floor. That would be destructive. Carolyn would not appreciate that. And uh, neither would the neighbors when we caught the whole neighborhood on fire. There's a proper place for a fire. And in a fireplace, it brings warmth and cheer and joy, and we enjoy it tremendously. But outside of its place, it becomes a terribly destructive thing that burns uncontrolled and unchecked 
and blights and ruins and destroys life. This forest fire raging up here in the wilderness area is a good illustration of it. And that's what Paul is telling us. Sex is good. It's right. God uh, put every uh, portion of our body together as, as it pleased him to be used in this way, but within the confines of marriage. That's where it belongs. That's the proper place for it. And outside it's hurtful. So Paul says, I'm not going to be controlled by anything. I'll put it to its proper use. Then in verse 13, he goes on to another contemporary saying in Corinth. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now again, he's quoting another contemporary saying. God created the stomach to hold food, and he created food to go into the stomach. In other words, uh, the stomach is made to be satisfied. And they inferred from that conclusion that the body, the entire body, was made to be satisfied. When you get hungry, you get a Mac attack, you go out and get a Big Mac. When you have a sexual, sexual urge, then you merge and you satisfy yourself. See, and that's the way they were reasoning. And Paul says, no, not at all. It is true that the body is, that the stomach is made for food, but the body is not a plaything. He doesn't say that the body is not made for sex. You see, that would be a repudiation of what he's already said. All things are lawful. But he does say the body is not for illicit sex. It's not for fornication. It's the term he uses, which is the big term for all sorts of sexual aberration outside of him. Anything that, that veers from God's plan is fornication. And Paul says the body is not for that. It's not a plaything. It's not something that we can use merely to indulge ourselves. Our body is made for God. And then Paul begins to reveal something that you will never find in a Kinsey report or Rogers or Masters or any of the other, even the more serious uh, sociological reports on, on sexual behavior in the world today or clinical studies on sex. You won't find these truths because they're a revelation. Man does not understand man's sexuality. He just doesn't get the picture. Only God understands us. And he tells us in this passage how the gift of sex is to be used, what our bodies are for. Three principles he gives us. The first is in verse 13. The body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. The first thing he wants us to know is that the Lord is for your body. Now you can see why this would have such impact on Paul's world because they didn't think the gods or God was for the body. The body was a prison house of the soul. And Paul cuts right across all their contemporary thinking and he says, I want you to know that God loves your body. It doesn't make any difference if it's tall, dark, and handsome or short, shot, and shapeless. God loves your body. So. And I don't know about you, but, you know, occasionally you look in the mirror and you think, uh, not much there. You know, I need a few more muscles here and there or a little less flab there. But, but God wants you to know that he loves your body just the way it is. And he created it to be an instrument through which he could display his character in the world. He wants you to glorify him in your body. To glorify means to express his character, to be godlike. To use your body as God intended, to use your hands and your mouth and your ears and your sex organs as God intended. 
It's all proper, but it has to be put to its intended purpose. And that's what he means by our the Lord not only is the Lord for our body, but our body is for the Lord. He turns that around, you see. Our body is an instrument to be used by God in the world. So Paul's plea is to use our bodies the way God instructs us. Don't use them for illicit purposes. They're not playthings. They have a proper function, and let's find out what it is and use them in that proper way. And verse 14 tells us that not only does God have a purpose for our bodies now, but he has a purpose throughout eternity for our bodies. Do you see? God's going to raise that body up. It'll be a different body composed apparently of different materials, but recognizable. We'll be able to recognize one another as the disciples did the Lord. And uh, uh, essentially it'll, it'll be, uh, I suppose, much like the body you have, but uh, capable of, of performing according to the desires of the Spirit. As, as uh, the Lord put it, the flesh is willing, uh, the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And then we'll have a body that's comparable to the desires of the Spirit, so it'll be a, a, a tireless, eternal body. But still, it's a body. We'll never be uh, disembodied spirits. We'll have a body, and we'll serve God throughout eternity. Now, that's Paul's point. Don't abuse that body. Don't throw it away. Don't discard it. Uh, it's, it's not something to be used just for self-gratification. It's an instrument to be put to God's intended purpose. Find out what God wants you to do with your body and use it in that way. That's the first point. The second point that he makes is in verse 15 and following through verse 17. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? May it never be. What an unthinkable thought, Paul says. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a harlot is one body with her? For he says the two will become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Now Paul tells us two mysteries here. He reveals two facts that could not be known apart from Revelation. First is the nature of our union with Christ. He says, don't you know that you're a member of Christ? Now that's not just a symbol, that's a fact. Jesus put it this way, I in you and you in me. We're inextricably linked with the Lord Jesus Christ so that where we go in the world, he goes. What we do, he does. What we say, he says. And our life is to be lived out in a recognition of that union. He's possessed us. That's not just a figure of speech. When Paul talks about Christ in you, he means that. Christ is in you. And later in this section, verse 17, he says, we're one spirit with him. Wherever we go, we make visible the invisible Christ. Wherever we go, we take Christ with us. Whatever we do, we implicate Christ. He does it too. Now, that's the first great mystery, our union with Christ. The second great mystery is the nature of the sexual uh, of the sex act itself and what it does. And Paul's point is that the union of of two people is far greater than the union of the moment. It's something that transcends a mere physical joining. It actually joins two people together in such a way that they are never uh, able to separate themselves. They're inseparably joined. You see how he argues? 
In verse 16, do you not know that the one who joins himself to a harlot is one body with her? For he says, the two will become one flesh. I've talked to many men who's, uh, who throughout, who, throughout their lives they've been involved in one illicit sexual affair after another. And, and they tell me that, that the union with that person transcends that the, any physical union that transpired in the past. Whenever they see that person, there's just something there. There's the awareness that they've shared a mystery at some deeper level than, than the merely physical. And you see, the world will never tell you that. You can just go from one affair to the next and it doesn't have any effect on you physically. You can just write it off as another event. But God says, no. And when you're joined to someone sexually, it's more than a physical joining. It's an intertwining of two personalities. You're linked together in such a way that you can never be torn apart. And you see how Paul is reasoning? We're united with Christ that way. We can never be torn apart from him. And when we engage in some sexual act outside of marriage, we're linked to the person with whom we, we're, we engage in that act, and we are implicating Christ himself in that action. He's involved in what we're doing. Now, the third great fact is found in the final three verses of the, of the chapter. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Now, that's a strange thing to uh, say. It would seem to me that there are certain sins that affect the body, the sins of Gluttony and drunkenness certainly have their effect on the body, but Paul says no. No, those, those sins are, they don't, uh, they're not direct violations of our body. But there is one sin, he says, that will violate your body in a way that no other, other sin will do. And that's, um, the sin of immorality. The immoral man, he says, the fornicatious man, the man who commits adult, uh, commits fornication, sins against his own body. And in verse 19, he tells us what that sin is. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You ever think that went through? I think probably that principle, more than any other, has kept me out of some uh, things that I normally would have done or thought. That God himself the majestic, holy God of the universe lives in my body. The uh, term that Paul uses here for temple is not the word for the temple complex, but the word for the holy of holies, the inner sanctuary. And Paul's point is that, that our bodies, far from being something to be disregarded and used as a plaything, is a sanctuary for God. Now, that's going to keep... Uh, it's going to control a lot of your thoughts and a lot of your actions, if you understand that. It would be somewhat, to allow, to allow lustful thoughts to go unchecked in your mind would be like showing a, a pornographic movie in Westminster Cathedral. See, that's, that's the way he's arguing. Now, we know today that God doesn't live in a, in a house. He lives in people. But uh, to the man of that day, these temples were very special. They were holy places. And the gods were holy. And Paul wants to evoke a sense of reverence and awe for our bodies. He wants us to understand that the God of the universe dwells in our bodies, and that, that should have 
has have something to do that should control our thoughts and our actions. And that's why Paul says, flee immorality. Because that sin uniquely defiles the body. It does something to the inner man. It just causes life to become less and less satisfying. People who are who are involved in in illicit sex just find the quality of life draining away. And it just becomes empty and unsatisfying. The uh, young man in Proverbs 5 who has followed the harlot describes himself in his old age this way. He said, oh, I wish I had listened to my, to my elders. I have given my manhood to strangers. He just senses that he's lost his manhood. And that's what happens. We lose our sense of manliness or womanliness. We, we become less and less human. We desensitize ourselves and become more and more like animals in our, in our thinking. And that's what Paul wants us to avoid, you see. Just flee immorality. Because this, in a unique way, is a violation of the sanctity of, of your bodies and a prostitution of their use. God wants our bodies to be used as his instruments. We must not, therefore, use them merely as instruments for self-indulgence, somehow to gratify our own uh, personal uh, passions outside of, of God's will. So he says, flee from it, because there's too much to lose. I think I've shared with you before the story of a friend of mine who was a salesman in Northern California, and he went to a convention in Southern California, and he was tired, so he went to his hotel room and turned in early and was surprised in the middle of the night to discover that his roommate had brought a, a young woman into the room with him. And uh, he was shocked. He didn't know quite what to do. And a bit later, this, this young lady got out of bed and started over toward his bed. And he leaped up on the bed, and he said, Young lady, he said, I have too much to lose. And he raced out through the door. All he had on was his shorts and down the hall, you know, just fleeing for his life, literally, because he was right. He had too much to lose. Because he knew that this was not merely the act of a moment, but he knew that the deadly effects that it could have in his life. That's what Paul is saying. Flee from it. This is one sin you just don't temporize with. You don't play around with it. You don't see how close you can get. Not that you should ever do that, but you don't. You flee. You run from it. Now, Jesus, I think, takes us a step further back in, in Matthew 5. You don't need to turn to that passage, but I want to read this, his statement. This is in Matthew five twenty-seven. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Now, I don't think that Jesus is trying to make it more difficult for us. He's not saying you thought the sin was the act, but I'm going to make it even more difficult to obey. We're going to, we're going to state that, that the real sin is the thought. Yeah, that's so foreign to the Lord's heart. What he's doing is giving us a way out. He's saying if you deal with the thoughts, if you're not adulterous in your thoughts, then you don't need to worry so much about the actions. The actions will take care of themselves. If the thoughts are right, or put another way, Jesus said, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So the real place to flee, the point of flight, is in our thoughts. Uh, you know, the world bombards us daily with stimuli 
to think illicit thoughts. Billboards, magazines, movies, TV, everywhere you turn, you're being stirred up to think the wrong kind of thoughts. Now, you can't help the initial thought. You can't, you can't prevent that from coming into your mind, the initial temptation. That's not sin. As Luther put it, you can't prevent the ver- birds from flying over your, your head, but you can keep them from nesting in your hair. I don't have that problem, but some of you might. <laughs> and, you see, his point, though, is you can't, you can't prevent the thoughts, the immediate thought that comes into your mind, but you can stop it from setting up in your thinking. You can, it comes in as sort of a fuzzy picture, and then you focus on it, and then it becomes sin, Jesus said. And if we'll deal with the thoughts there, if we'll flee from the thoughts, then the actions will take care of themselves. The Lord goes on to say, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off. Now, he's not speaking literally there. He's speaking symbolically. Because he recognizes that there are two routes through which stimuli come into our mind that induce thoughts through what we see and through what we touch. So he says, if your eye is causing you to offend what you're looking at, it's causing you to think the wrong kind of thoughts, to think lustful thoughts, pluck out your eye in the sense that you stop looking at that thing. You turn away from it. If your hand is causing you to offend what you touch, then you need to deal sternly with yourself. Don't touch. That's his point. That means that if you're uh, reading a book and you come across some uh, uh, salacious uh, portion, throw it away. If you're watching television and something flashes across the screen that arouses you, get up, turn it off, walk out. If you're in a movie and something comes on the screen and you know that that's going to... I don't know about you, but I I can never get those thoughts out of my mind. My memory seizes them and holds them, and for years to come, they'll pop out in the form of temptations to think lustful thoughts. Well, get up, walk out. That's what, that's what the Lord is saying. We need to deal harshly with ourselves in those areas where we're stimulated to think the wrong kind of thoughts. And if we flee, then God will provide the strength that we need to, to walk in obedience to him. So that's Paul's point. We need to flee fornication because of the effect that it has upon us. And because he says in verse 20, you're not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. We don't uh, belong to ourselves anymore. We're God's possession. We're very valuable, uniquely valuable. And therefore, God has the right to point out those things in our lives that, that reduce the value of his, of his possession. He has that right. And uh, since he's redeemed us, bought us out, purchased us, and we belong to him, he can put his finger on those issues that reduce the worth of the possession that, that he's gained. Now, many of you, I'm sure, are thinking, this is something I should have heard years ago, or maybe even last week, or in my childhood. And uh, you look back over your life and you, you see... Failures there, times when you, when you fail to be what you know God wanted you to be. And we all have those experiences. 
Well, you need to understand how God looks at you today. This is a new beginning. This is a new day in Christ. When you invited Jesus Christ into your life as your Savior and Lord, he bought you out. He purchased you. So sin no longer has any control over you unless you permit it to. We're free to live in obedience to him. That's our right. It's our inheritance as sons and daughters. And as God views you in that light, he he doesn't see the past. He just sees today. That's all. If you want to see an illustration of how the Lord looks at looks at us, you, you, you should read John 10. And the story there of this poor, miserable woman who was caught in the act of adultery. The, uh, the Pharisees found her with another man, and they dragged her out into the streets and exposed her to shame. It must have been a terribly embarrassing thing. She was seated there on the ground, and, and these men stood around her. And Jesus' words to them were, He who is without sin cast the first stone. And they all left because they all knew that they were guilty, if not in act, at least in thought, of the very sin of which she was being charged. And then the one who had the right, you see, to judge her, because he was, he was not guilty of sin, said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The past was forgotten. There was a new beginning. And she had the power now despite the temptations around her, to obey. She didn't have to sin anymore, and that's what the Lord is saying to us today. Despite the flood of pornography and, and all the stimuli on every side, the temptations that come in like a flood, Scripture says the Spirit of God will raise up a standard against the flood. There's the potential today of walking in obedience. Forget the past. Don't worry about it. God doesn't. He's paid for it. It's all past. He's not going to ever bring it up again. It shouldn't weigh on your mind or your memory. It shouldn't cause you to fail today because you failed in the past. Uh, Jeremiah put it this way. He was seated on the Mount of Olives, probably watching the city of Jerusalem burn. And uh, the city was being destroyed because of, because of their immorality. And Jeremiah said, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And that's the way we need to look at life. The past is gone. We have a new beginning. This morning is a new beginning for you. Regardless of the past, it's forgiven and forgotten. And you have the power to walk today in obedience to him. Paul writes to this same church in 2 Corinthians, and he says, it's as though you're a chaste virgin in God's eyes. These were people that had been homosexual, and they had been guilty of every sexual vice. And yet Paul says, you're a chaste virgin in God's eyes. 